Please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be spending this morning and the next few weeks talking about love as as described here in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to talk about the source of love this morning. We're going to be talking about the uh, assurance that love provides, the witness that love provides, the the great uh, aspects of of God's love as manifested in our lives over the the coming weeks. And so hopefully this is an encouraging section of the the, uh, epistle of 1 John for you. 1 John chapter 4, we're looking at verses 7 through 10 this morning. So if you're able to, uh, please stand as we read God's word together. 1 John chapter 4 beginning here in verse 7. Here's what John writes. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Uh, let, let me pray for us. Father, help us this morning to look to you, to know what love is and receive that type of love and exhibit in our relationships with each other. Think this morning of of those uh, in our church who are are hurting, those who are hurting physically. We know of several who are just in some some very rough circumstances this morning. So we ask for your, your special care and protection on them. Help them to feel your love and and to cover according to your plan, and, and, and most importantly, uh, that, that this time would have the right effect in their lives of being drawn closer to you. We, we pray for those who are struggling emotionally and, and spiritually in our, in our church, and we, we ask uh, for all of us that we would receive your, your special revelation through your word, that your spirit would work through these these truths and we will be changed as a result. Not for our glory, but for yours. Help it to be manifest in our lives and the lives of, of all those in this church. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So recently, uh, we have been talking about love. And First John has talked several times about what love is, that the nature of love and, and how we love and I certainly have become convicted about my lack of love. And remember, as we were going through chapter 3, we talked about how uh, love is defined as as giving of yourself for the benefit of another person, uh, giving of yourself really for the eternal benefit of another. And we talked about that aspect of love and and what all that entails. And we talked about hatred and how hatred is is really a selfishness, is instead of sacrificing of myself for the benefit of another. I engage in relationships for my, my own benefit. There's a, a self-centeredness to my relationships. And we talked about how the ultimate expression of self-centeredness is murder. The, the heart of a person who hates is really the heart of a murderer and the heart of a person who's self-centered. So there's the taking of a life, 
at one extreme, and God calls us to the opposite extreme, to, to lay down our lives for one another. That's what biblical love is. And certainly, as I've been thinking about that definition of love in my own life, I am aware of my incredible need for growth in this area. In fact, I was thinking about love in relationship with with just every aspect of life, but you know, I kind of thought about it, of course, first in my, my marriage relationship, the most important relationship in my life, and kind of began thinking about that and, and, and just how from the moment I get up in the morning, I, I'm not loving as I need to love my, my spouse. And I, I hope I don't start any marital issues here this morning, but uh, I'm going to throw out a hand grenade here. Um, I thought about it from the moment I got out of bed, my, my relationship with my wife, and, and I realized um, in the 15 years that we've been married, I'm not sure how many times I've made the bed. But it's a small number, okay? Embarrassingly small, I'm sure. And, and I've had a lot of good reasons in my mind for why I'm not the primary, the primary bed maker in our, in our marriage relationship. Uh, I tell myself, well, I'm, I'm out of bed first, generally in the morning. It's hard to make a bed with someone in it, right? Um, I have places to be in the morning. I am a busy man. I, I've got to be places. And if Whitney wants to wait until the evening to make the bed, I'm more than happy to, to make the bed before we go to bed. But, um, but what's the point, right, at that point? And, and then, and this, this may sound funny, but I, I really believe this. Um, the third thing I told myself is, well, she's got kind of a vision for how she wants the bed made. And it is very specific, okay? And, and uh, it changes, uh, so some, some months this sheet goes on top of the other and then it's folded back this way and the next month the, it's, it's completely reversed and, and the order of the pillows seems to change and you know what, that's, you know, I'm glad that she cares about that but I really don't and so, you know, why not let the person who really cares about that implement their vision? Well, again, I, I was thinking through my lack of love for others, and I just kind of thought about it from the beginning of my day to the end of the day, and I thought, you know what, the first thing I do in the morning is a very self-centered thing. I don't even think about caring for my wife in just that little area. And so I thought, you know what, um, yeah, I'm the first one out of bed sometimes, but not always, and not by that much. And, and yeah, I've got things to do, but so does my wife. And, and I don't want to pat myself on the back too much, but... Um, I'm an intelligent guy. I think I can figure out how to make a bed, okay? And so I, I began to, to study bed making. And uh, over the last month, I, I began to make the bed more often. In fact, just last week, Whitney came to me and she said, uh, Hey, Daniel, um, you know what? I'm remaking the bed behind you a lot less now. So um, we're growing in that, right? Now, if only... If only it were so simple, right? If only I could say, you know what? Uh, I was struggling with this love thing, but I started making the bed. And so I, I think I've pretty much got it nailed down now. Uh, or if, if, only it were, if only it were a matter of things to do. Like if I could just kind of look at the, my day, because it, my day doesn't end when I get out of bed, right? That's just the first thing. And then there's, there's relationships with my kids when I see them and interact with them in the morning. Then I go to work and, and I interact with people at the office and, the, and uh, I interact with uh, people in the church and I interact with, with people in the afternoons. I interact with my neighbors. And if, if, if only it were a matter of just 
writing down all the things I needed to do to be a loving person, I could still maybe have a shot at it, right? If there was just a matter of things I knew I needed to do, I could maybe work and, and do a lot of them and be a more loving person, but, but that's, that's not it, right? As we've seen in 1 John, God's call on me is to have a heart that's transformed. That looks at all of my relationships through the lens of love, through asking myself the question, how do I engage in sacrificially laying down my life for the benefit of others with whom God has, has created a relationship? And when that's the definition of love, and that's what God's call on my life is, I realize how far I have to go in this area. Because not only am I not a very loving person, I'm not even that nice of a person. This love that God has called me to exhibit is not going to come from me. It can only come from God. That's what John is going to tell us here in these verses as we begin talking about the type of love that God desires us to have. God is the source of love. And what I want us to do this morning as we look at 1 John 4, 7 through 10 is I want us to look at God being the source of love and, and think of two implications. If it's true that God is the source of love, let's, let's think through two implications of, of what that means and, and how I am going to to be a person who loves as God has called me to love. So here's the deal. Uh, how can we love as God calls us to love? First of all, here's the deal. Because God is the source of love, two things are going to have to happen so that I can love. The first thing that needs to happen is I must be born of God. Look at the text with me here in verse 7. John says, a beloved, and that's an expression that he's used frequently here in this epistle. He says, beloved, let us, let us love one another. And he's called us to love each other throughout the epistle and other places. But, but now it's a, a little bit more of a stronger exhortation here. He, he's calling the, the people with whom he's in relationship, these churches to whom he's writing, he's calling them to, to engage in loving relationships with one another. And he's including himself in that. He says, let us love one another. And this time, as he gives this exhortation to people to be in these loving relationships, he grounds the exhortation in, in theology, in an understanding of who God is, an understanding of, of, of the character of God. He says, here's the exhortation, let's love one another. And then he says, and here's the reason why, and it's a theologically profound reason. He says, let us love one another because love is, is from God. The source of the love that God calls us to exhibit towards one another comes not from ourselves, but from God. The psalmist would, would write in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in, in steadfast love. There's a type of love that, that God has. It's a, a constant, covenantal, faithful love. And he, he abounds in that. He exudes that. He is that. Uh, James would tell us that, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, as he talks about uh, our relationship with God and, and who God is, he says, Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? 
In other words, as we think about the, the bountiful blessings that have come from God, who has ever been able to find something out there in the universe or within themselves and say, hey, God, I found this really cool thing. I'd like you to have it to kind of, you know, pay you back a little bit. It can't happen. Paul says, because, here's why we can never pay God back, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Uh, anything that exists in the universe that is good comes from God, exists through him, and, and, and is to him. So there's nothing that I can, can grab and say, God, uh, I found you something nice. Why don't you go ahead and, and enjoy it? It's already come from him. And that includes love. This exhortation to love one another Because love comes from God is a theological truth that we must grasp if we're to love as God has called us to love. Obviously, we we live in a culture that doesn't rightly understand love, right? There's this idea kind of that, you know, there's there's this force out there that's love, and and God is just really good at marshalling this this force. I mean, there's, there's... light waves and radio waves and, and love waves that are kind of out there and, 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 they're, and they're powerful and we can't really escape them. You know, you think about the culture and, and song and how this idea is expressed in our, in our history of music even in our culture. The, the monkeys in the 1960s, what do they sing? I, I thought uh, love was only true in fairy tales, meant for someone else but not for me. Love was out to get me. That's the way it seemed. Disappointment haunted all my dreams. Then what happened? Then I saw her face. Now I, I'm a believer. Without a trace, no doubt in my mind, I'm in love. Ooh, and I'm a believer. It's like William Shatner singing here. Uh, couldn't leave her if I tried. It's this force. I, I saw her face, and man, I'd like to leave her, but I can't. It's love. Couldn't even do it if I wanted to. A couple decades later, Huey and Lewis in the news, what do they tell us? You don't need money, don't take fame, don't need no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's powerful and it's cruel sometimes, but it might just save your life. What is it? That's the power of love. The power of love. You think about in our own decade that we're living in now, that that song that's this deep contemplative existential crisis that, that Taylor Swift sang about when she talked about her, her inability to escape love and, and just kind of the, the, the breakup process and how she, she told the, this person, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. No, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. You go talk to your friends, talk to my friends, talk to me, but we are like never, ever, ever getting back together, like never. <laughs> you know? It's deep stuff. <laughs> now, we joke, right, but but that's kind of how we see love. It's this force out there, and, 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 and you know, it, it kind of overwhelms me. I, I fall in love. I fall out of love. And, and man, it's kind of powerful. And, and all, you know what? That, that's not a biblical understanding of love. What we understand as we look at scriptures that, that genuine, there are counterfeit loves, but genuine, authentic, biblical love comes from one source, and that source is God. Now, here is the implication that John draws from that truth. If it's true that love is not some impersonal force that exists out in the universe, or this thing that comes from within myself, if, if love comes from God, look at the verse. Look what happens next. Here, here's the logical conclusion. 
let us love one another, for love is from God. And he says this in verse 7, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, in other words, what, what this means is that I can know, when I look at a person who's exhibiting love, I can know they have been born of God. And the, and the tense that John uses there is that perfect tense that he uses Throughout First John, it describes something that's taken place in the past that has results in the present. So they, they've been born of God. It's this thing that, that happened in the past, but it didn't stay in the past. It has results in the present. And one of the results in the present is that that person knows God. That's in the present tense. Right now, they, they know God. They're in a relationship with him. The person that you see exhibiting biblical love is a person who has been born of God. And now knows God. Jesus and John, or John, writing in John chapter 1, verse 12, would say, To all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And now, because we've been reborn through belief in Jesus Christ, through placing our trust in him, we have this new ability. We've been born of God. We know God. We love. If love only comes from God, what do I know? I know when I see a person who's loving that they have been born of God. And conversely, what does verse 8 say? Verse 8 says, anyone who does not love then does not know God because, again, this theological truth, God is love. Okay. So what's maybe a question on your mind is you think about this. If I see a person who's not loving, I know that they don't have a relationship with God. If I see a person who does love, then, then I know they've been born of God. Now, now, here's kind of the question I have. As I was reading this and thinking through this, I thought, well, okay, what about, what about the person who I know is not in relationship with God and yet who does some loving things? Am I saying that unbelievers can never exhibit any aspect of love? And, and absolutely not. We know that, that those who do not have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ do extraordinary acts of love. They engage in sacrificial acts in their family, with their friends, even sometimes with, with enemies. So, so what does that mean? What I think that means is, is first of all, that, that God is a very gracious God and allows all of us to, through his common grace, experience the, the beauty of what sacrificial relationships look like. But I think that supernatural love, the love that, that John is describing here, is different than the type of love that the unbeliever experiences. As one person put it, uh, human love, however noble and however highly motivated, falls short if it refuses to include the Father and the Son as supreme objects of affection. Human love, however noble, however, however beautiful, it falls short if, if the ultimate object of affection is not the Father, the Son, the, the triune God. Jesus, in John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 31, would say, I'm doing what the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus would pray to the Father in John 17. He would say, Father, this is John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is a, a love that has existed within the triune God, a, a love for the Father and a love for the Son that's existed before the foundation of the world. And as you and I exhibit 
the love that God calls us to, a love that's the love that comes from God, catch this, our love is going to have that as its focus as well. And so to think about that definition of love, love is giving of myself for the benefit of another person, the eternal benefit of another person. That includes in it the idea of, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit being, being the ultimate object of that love. And apart from that, we're not exhibiting the type of love that God has called us to. And that type of love is impossible apart from being born again. Let me give you just one illustration of that. Um, Let's think about this in the context of the marriage relationship. In Genesis chapter 2, what do we see? In Genesis chapter 2, we see the establishment of the marriage relationship. God creates Eve, and he brings her to Adam, and and Adam, uh, Adam's pretty impressed, right? It says in verse 22 of Genesis Genesis 2, uh, the man, I'm sorry, verse 23 of Genesis 2, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And, and then the, uh, Moses kind of gives us this, this theological statement concerning the purpose of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so the, the biblical design of marriage is, is a, a man and a woman living in this this unified relationship, a relationship marked by its oneness. Sacrificial love for one another, working to to benefit each other through through sacrificial love. Now what happens after Genesis 2? What comes right after Genesis 2? Genesis 3, right? And what happens in Genesis 3? There's the fall sin and as God promised the curse and what does God say to Eve as he describes the effect of the curse on her life he, he talks about the marriage relationship and this this relationship that was marked by oneness is now going to be, be marked instead of oneness of purpose each sacrificing for the other's benefit now the relationship is marked by strife instead of the the wife working as as to, to encourage her husband and, and to be a helper in the ministry that God has called him to, instead of the husband sacrificially caring for his wife to, to love and nourish her, now there's, there's this desire for each to dominate the other, to usurp his role, to, to, to crush her. It, it's, it's twisted. The fall affects our ability to love. But then what happens? What happens in that marriage relationship? that's marred by the curse. What happens is the cross. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see again this idea of, I have to be born of God. If I'm going to have the marriage relationship that, that God desires me to have, the loving relationship that God desires me to have in the context of marriage, I have to be born again. Ephesians chapter 2 Paul describes our condition separated from God. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and and you walked that way. And then in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. So what happens there? There's a relationship uh, of marriage that's cursed by 
by sin. This, this oneness of relationship no longer exists. And, and then in Ephesians chapter 2, we see we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're dead under the curse. And then comes life through our faith in Jesus Christ. God, in his great mercy with which he loved us, makes us alive together. And through our faith, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we're made alive. We're, we're reborn. Now what happens to the marriage relationship? You come to just a couple chapters later to Ephesians chapter 5. And this, this vision for the marriage relationship, this type of love that God desires us to have in the context of marriage, now can exist again. He says in verse 28 of Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. He goes in verse 31, he repeats Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh the marriage-loving relationship restored through rebirth. And that's just one illustration. Because God is the source of love, because God is the source of love, I cannot love as God has called me to love unless I'm born again. The person born of God is transformed and takes on the character of the God of love. Now, just a couple wrong applications really quickly. These are wrong applications <laughs> that we have sometimes seen people draw from this, this truth that God is love. Notice that John doesn't say love is God. He says God is love, not love is God. In other words, we're not saying love is some deity, this impersonal force that exists. Also, notice that uh, he's going to define love here in just a minute, but, but understand this, love doesn't mean just treating me the way I want to be treated. He's not some sort of perverted twist on the golden rule here. God doesn't just treat me the way that I want to be treated in and of myself. God, God loves me, and we're going to talk about what that means in a moment. And it also doesn't mean that God is only love. He's also other things. John is going to say that God is, is light. He's truth. He, he's also spirit, he's going to say in First John 4. Love, in other words, isn't the only characteristic by which we understand God. Now, um, my kids at different points in their life have, have come to me for encouragement, and I am very encouraging. Um, my, 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 I had a child recently talking to me about, about running and, and asking uh, you know, if, if, uh, if I thought they would ever be a really good sprinter. And I said, uh, oh, no, no, never. Um, no, you will not be a good sprinter. You're you're going to be a terrible sprinter, actually. Um, I, I'm a terrible sprinter. Your mom, uh, no. Uh, grandparents, no. Uh, great-grandparents, you know, as far back as I know your genetic history, uh, sprinting is not in your future or DNA. It's not going to happen. Love you, but no. Um, now, for my children who are my biological children to, to become sprinters there would need to be some sort of like superhero like accident with nuclear waste or something or you know gamma rays or you know there have to be something radical to take place in their dna structure for them to become sprinters for you and i to be great lovers as god has called us to be lovers something radical has to take place you and I are not naturally loving people. What happens? We have to become born of God. Because God is the source of love, I'm not the source of love, two things have to happen so that I can love. First of all, I must be born of God. 
there must be a radical transformation that takes place. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. I must look to God for my understanding of what love is. You see, many are going to accept this premise, love has to be sacrificial, but we have to go deeper here, right? Uh, what does it mean that love has to be sacrificial? What's the aim of that sacrifice? What, what, what's the intended benefit here? What I think has to happen is, is not only do we have to acknowledge our inability in and of ourselves to love the way that we need to, to love, it has to go deeper than that. I have to acknowledge not only can I not love as I'm supposed to love, I can't even rightly understand what love is in and of myself. In other words, I can't even definitionally rightly comprehend what love is apart from God's special revelation. Look what John says here in verses 9 and 10. He says, uh, in this, the love of God was made manifest, was, was, it became visible, it became demonstrated among us. In other words, this, this idea of love didn't just kind of exist here in humanity and God didn't say, hey, hey guys, you guys want to understand what love is? Look over there. And, and that aspect of humanity, that realm of humanity, there's, there's where love is. That, that didn't exist. In verse 10, he's going to say, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, we don't look to ourselves and say, um, here's how I can understand love. I can look at what I do. I can look at my actions. It's not from within ourselves. What had to happen is, is God had to make it visible to us, and he sent his one and only son we see there. That, that phrase that we see there in the ESV translated, God sent his only son. Some translations say his only begotten son. It's referring there and emphasizing Jesus' absolute, complete uniqueness. John would use the expression in John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, the only God, the unique God, that's Jesus, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. John chapter 3, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's something absolute, completely unique about Jesus. He's the only Son of God. If I want to understand what love is, I have to look to Jesus. In this is love, he says in verse 10, not that we loved God. In other words, it's not, I don't look to my love of God to understand what love is. This is a really important point as well, right? I think we sometimes make a mistake. And I, and I think the mistake that we sometimes make when we try to understand love is that we look horizontally. We say, well, I, I want to understand what love is, and so I'm going to, to look at my, my spouse and see how they love. I want to understand what love is, and so I'm going to look at my parents. I want to understand what love is, and so I'm going to, to look at other Christians. And, and there's, there's, there's parts of that that can be helpful, but, but not, because of, not because of them, but, but what we're going to see that's, that's lovely and worth emulating is, is what they receive from God. And so I think we make a problem when we start looking horizontally to define what love is, right? There's a book I, I just recently uh, downloaded on the, on the Kindle and I'm kind of reading a little bit of. It, it, it's an old book, and many of you are probably w familiar with it. I was very familiar with the contents before I started reading it. And, and parts of it, uh, even though I've never read it, parts of it I found helpful before. And I think that many people have found aspects of this book helpful, and, and I, think it's, I think there's some good things to glean from it. Um, but I have some concerns with it, too, sometimes as, as, as people apply the truths in it. The book is called the, the Five Love Languages, and maybe you're familiar with it. 
the five love languages kind of premises that uh, there are different ways that different people express affection for one another. And I think that's a true statement, by the way. I think there are different ways that we express our affection for other people. Like the book talks about how some people like words of affirmation and, and some people uh, like to, to give gifts. And uh, if that's your way that you express affection, I would love to talk more with you. Um, some people, it's, it's, acts of, it's acts of service. And I'd love to talk with you as well. And uh, some people, it's, it's uh, touch or you know, whatever. And, and I think that's true. I think there's some truth to that. Here, here's the problem, though. Here, here's, how, here's how we can apply that wrongly. Uh, Gary Chapman, who wrote the book, talks in the beginning about how the, the way that he came up with these five different love languages is he, he observed how people related to one another, and especially in the context of marriage, how, how spouses kind of related to one another, and sometimes how they were misfiring in their communication. And again, I, th- I think there's some helpful things to glean from that in marriage relationship, but here's, here's the danger. If I don't begin with what God says love is, there's a danger of presenting some, some wrong and idolatrous concepts of, of what love is supposed to be. In fact, I, I wish that maybe he had used a, a different word besides love languages. because I'm not sure that's, that's the biblical way to describe what's happening in that book. What's happening, there are some great expressions of love in some context, but, but you know, here's the danger. Sometimes the way that I want you to treat me might be an idol in my life. I might have this idol of, of, uh, th- that exists in my life that I want people to say nice things to me. I, I want words of affirmation, and, and uh, there's a time in my life, and you want to be loving to me. And you know my love, love language, so-called, is, is words of affirmation. And, and, and what I need is like the love language of a, you know, kick in the pants or something. And, and you know, that's what would love, be loving toward me. What we have to do is begin not with, not with the horizontal definition of love, not how we want to be treated, but, but what does God say that I'm to do in, in this relationship with you? Our definition comes from God. In fact, let's think, about, let's think about our definition of love. Remember we've said that love is giving of ourselves for the eternal benefit of another. And let's, let's see what happens here in verses 9 and 10 as, as John talks about God demonstrating love, manifesting love, displaying love through his only son, Jesus. And look at how he says he does it. Here's our, here's our definition of love. He says, it was made manifest, this is verse 9 among us, that God sent his only son into the world, there's action, so that we might live through him. There's intent, there's purpose. In our definition of love, it's, it's giving of ourselves, that's, that's action, then there's intent for the benefit of another person. I, I'm doing things with an intent behind the things that I'm doing for their eternal benefit, for God's glory. John says that, that God acted in a loving way, in a sacrificial love, with, with an intent, with, with a desire to, to bring us into relationship with him for his glory and for our, our joy. Verse 10, in this is love, here's the definition of love, not that we loved God, we've talked about that, but that he loved us and sent his son. What is that? That's action to be the propitiation for our sins. There's intent. Action plus intent equals the biblical definition of love. One without the other falls short. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, here at, at Five Points, and I was in, in the gym, and I was getting ready to, to uh, get on the treadmill. And I, I've talked before about my issues with treadmills, and um, 
I have this elaborate process of, of looking at the available treadmills, and I have like a grading system to determine what is the, the optimal treadmill to get on. It, it involves slope of the floor and uh, fan proximity, distance from other people, what television show is on the monitor. I mean, it's, it's an elaborate process. So I'm here a couple weeks ago, and about 20, it takes me about 25 minutes to figure out which is the best treadmill. Um, and I, I get ready to, to get on. I get on the treadmill. I, I enter in all the information. You have to enter in, like, your Social Security number and all this kind of stuff and how old you are and blah, blah. And so I enter all that information in, and it's ready to go. And I'm like, you know what? I'm thirsty here. I'm, I'm going to get off this treadmill for just a second and get a drink. And so I, I get off the treadmill. I, t- I turn around, and someone else jumps on that treadmill. I know. <laughs> now, what is that? That was sacrifice. I gave that treadmill to someone else. What's the problem? I had no intention of doing so. <laughs> Action without intent is not love. Uh, a couple days uh, later, uh, my, my dad sent me an email. You know, my dad has a multiple myeloma, and he's talking about some different organizations to, to donate to. And I realized um, I had never donated to, to one of these organizations. For seven years, I had been intending to donate to one of, these, one of these organizations, and until last week, I never had. Now, what is that? That's intent, no action, not love. What is biblical love? It's action plus intent. One without the other is not love. Now, here's something else that, as we think about a biblical understanding of what love is, here's something else that, that should blow your mind, Okay? He says, let's let's go deeper here. He says in verse 10, it's not love that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that word propitiation mean? What it means is it means the turning away of God's wrath, for God to be completely satisfied. Psalm 711 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And so what propitiation means, it means that the, the sinner is cleansed, that, that through Christ's work on the cross, the sinner's cleansed, and, and there's a turning away of God's wrath. The, the wrath of God no longer resides upon us because of God's loving action of sending his son. So there's action sending his son with the intent of, of God's wrath being turned away from us and us being brought into eternal relationship with God. Now here's the thing that blows my mind as I think about what love is. Here, as John has the opportunity to describe what love is, we see that it is in an act of supreme wrath that we find the supreme illustration of God's love. Is that not astonishing to you? <laughs> is it in that, that same, that, that exact moment in which God's wrath is expressed completely, that, that God's love is expressed completely as well? Any definition of love that doesn't understand that God's love was demonstrated to us while we were yet sinners, God's ultimate expression of his love came at the same time as his ultimate expression of wrath. A person who doesn't have that understanding in their definition of love doesn't understand biblical love. What God calls us to do is to give of ourselves for the eternal benefit of others. We see biblical manifestations of that throughout Scripture, right? Intent plus action 
that God calls us to again and again in relationships with each other. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and describes Jesus' sacrificial love. Colossians 3, verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's time that you and I radically redefine love, right? It's time for us to throw away our, our, our self-centered definitions of what love is and our notions of how other people are, you know, we think, well, that person's not loving to me. They're, they're failing me in our relationship. They're, they're not treating me in the relationship that I desire, in the way that I desire to be treated. I, I wanted them to, to be nicer to me, and I, they're not being nicer to me, and, and, and so they're, they're not loving, and therefore our relationship is, it's time for us to throw all those, those, those self-centered definitions of love away. And to base our understanding of love on the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross as God expresses his love for us. Let me give you a couple applications here as we think about our love and understanding it as, as God understands love. First of all, what this means, what it means that I have to look to God from understanding what love is, the, the first thing that it means is that my love for you is not based on your worth. My love for you is not based on your worthiness to receive my love. And fortunately, vice versa. I've had several opportunities to, to talk with people who are in, in very, you know, perhaps very close to the end of their life or in, in some great physical need to talk about their state of their soul. And sometimes, as we've talked about God and, and his love for them, they've, they've said something like this, uh, I don't know, I, I wish I could believe that God loves me, but I, I'm not sure. In this is love, not that we loved God, who is completely worthy, but that he, that he loved us. The beauty of the cross is an expression of God's love. It's not that Jesus Christ died on the cross for lovely people. That's not a way to help us understand what love is. What we see at the cross is that Jesus Christ died for unlovely people, for people who were his enemies. Now, as I receive love from God, because where does all true love come from? All biblical love comes from above. Nothing good comes except from God. As I receive that type of love myself, as a person who doesn't deserve that type of love, now I'm a conduit of God's love toward others who also don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve for me to love you the way that God calls me to love you. 
I don't deserve to be loved the way that God calls you to love me. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. None of us deserve this type of love. But fortunately, none of, none of us are loving based upon each other's worth. We love with God's love. And the very definition of this type of love is that it's given to someone who doesn't deserve it. So my love is not based upon your worth. Also, another application here is my love has to have the right intent, right? My love has to have the, the right intent. As I love you, my goal isn't for you to say, man, that Daniel sure is a loving guy. I sure do like that guy. Now, that's a nice side benefit, right? When that happens, by God's grace. But my goal isn't, as I love you, for you to, to think about how great I am. My goal isn't ultimately your friendship. My, my goal isn't that you love me back. The ultimate intent of my love is your eternal benefit as God defines that benefit. My ultimate int- intent is that you would be drawn closer to God for his glory and your joy as a result of my love. And sometimes that means I'm going to love you in a language you don't enjoy hearing and vice versa. But it's because we love each other that we speak that language. Then finally, another application I think here is we think about how because God is a source of love, I have to look to God for my understanding of what love is. My love for you is always going to be manifested in action. I can't say I love you in theory. If I really love you, as God brings you into my life as a, as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, my love for you must be manifested by action. As you come to me with needs, I can't say, hey, go <laughs> be warmed and filled. As you come to me with, 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 with needs, I, I can't say, let's let someone else take care of that. Proactively, I have to be engaged in laying down my life for your eternal benefit. That means not just intent, but action. Who is equal to these things? None of us, right? I can't love you this way. But what we see by the grace of God is that we have access to the source of love, the one who is love, through Jesus Christ. If we've been born of God, we love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the gift that we have of eternal life through his name and the ability now we have to, because we've been born again, to to love, to know you. I pray that this love would would be manifested in in my life where my heart is is cold sometimes. Lord, I need you to to stir me to to love and good deeds. And and Lord, I I pray that in our church, our relationships would manifest manifest, uh, love. It would not be characterized by, by bitterness, by hardness of spirit, but by sacrificial, constant desire to lay down our lives for each other for our eternal benefit. We pray this for the glory of your name, your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.